Welcome to episode 36 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Hey, today's guest is Alexander Otto. He is a Germany-based landscape photographer, and he also has his own uh, landscape photography podcast that was, um, I guess, loosely inspired by this podcast, which is kind of cool. We had some really cool uh, conversations around... uh, landscape photography as a cultural practice um, and using it uh, as a documentation uh, practice and as well as uh, marketing. Uh, We talked about Instagram and the rise of popularity in certain uh, European Union uh, locations. And uh, we talked about some various uh, artists that uh, inspire Alexander, including Alex Nail, who I'm also a big fan of. Um, and uh, Cody Duncan and Jose Ramos, a few other people. And uh, just a reminder, um, love it if you reach out to me on social media about the podcast, ideas you have, um, any feedback you have. Uh, it's uh, Matt Payne Photo or Matt Payne Photography, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. And as a reminder, we are still uh, looking for people to support the podcast on Patreon. Uh, I've been recording some uh, special uh, audio for Patreon uh, subscribers, um, and it's pretty fun. So uh, check that out, and uh, yeah, love to hear back from you. And uh, thanks so much for listening, and have a great new year. Okay, well, uh, uh, Alexander Otto, it's awesome to have you on the podcast through your podcasting in Germany, which is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> yeah, we had some some sound troubles, but I think we've worked worked through those. Thanks for thanks for helping out. Yeah, thanks for uh, actually putting up with me and uh, investing some time into solving this issue. No worries. Um, I'll. Uh, I'll let you handle my wife later when she's mad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I'll try my best. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so um, let's start off by talking a little bit about um, about you, like get the listeners to know a little bit about you, um, you know, how you got into photography. I know in your about page, there's some really interesting stuff, like you're in a death metal band, which is pretty cool, I think. <laughs> so, okay. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're in uh, you're in West Germany. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. There, there's not much landscape here, but Germany does offer some interesting places. Uh, we might get into later on if you're uh, willing or interested. Um, okay. I've, I guess the first thing I should say is probably that all those uh, things about death metal musicians are cliches, like we're not Satanists and we don't enjoy <laughs> noise. And most of us are very fine people, at least from what I know so far. And as far as landscape photography is concerned, I guess, uh, if I should start from the very beginning, um, it all started uh, probably with uh, the travels my parents did, because my father is an environmental ecologist and did a lot of uh, traveling during his university career. And my mom also did a lot of traveling because she's a geography teacher. And uh, I think the second subject was biology. So 
the thing is like both of them really really love to travel and so in my childhood i got to see all these amazing places and uh, did a lot of, of exploring like while we were outside and like uh, beaches and forests and all those different places you get to see when you were out in europe and yeah. back in the day i, I kind of picked up a camera which was my dad's camera um back in the analog days and since i had to wait for like two or three weeks at a time until i actually got to see my results i pretty much abandoned the idea really quickly because instant gratification seems to be something that my adolescent self was very much into and not so much into waiting right <laughs> and so when digital rode along and i kind of was old enough to travel by my own um i kind of picked it up again. I just asked my dad if he could give me his camera. And so I just took it along and, uh, well, basically just did the same thing again. Like I w went to Japan in 2006 and tried to take a couple of pictures and it kind of didn't work out. So, um, well, I, I tried to, to invest a little bit more time into it. And by the time I went uh, again in 2008, I was a little bit more into it. So, but still not quite. And most of the results were just like random shots here and there and kind of didn't reflect anything that I wanted to do because at the time then I was already a little bit involved into the deviant art community and back in the day there were quite some interesting people on there like Mark Adamus was still active and Alexandra which you might always uh, already also have on the show <laughs> yeah and uh, a lot of other great photographers and so I kind of um, had an idea for what I wanted to do, which was back in the day, basically do something as awesome as they did. And then from there on out, I tried to progress and put more work into it. So by the time I did my next trip, which was um, across the United States in 2009, so all the way from Seattle down to Eureka, across um, Oregon and did Crater Lake and uh, went to Yellowstone and uh, up Glacier and then into Canada and all these sorts of places. And how, I, how long I, did that? How long did that trip take? Uh, not that, that much, amazing. like eight, eight weeks probably, because I oh, got semester uh, only break. Only eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, the the time you get when you're in university in Germany and you got semester break, so you got a lot of time in your hands. Yeah, uh, must be awesome being European. <laughs> in the United well, States, in that regard, like, we yeah. don't believe in we don't believe in having time off in the United States. It's kind of funny. Like my friend, um, he works in the aerospace industry. And a lot of their clients are in Germany and whatnot. And it's like basically the whole month of August, they just don't work. <laughs> and okay. I'm like, that must be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in Germany, like uh, on semester breaks, you usually do, do like term papers and uh, do a couple of tests here and there. And uh, most of the time you also have to do like um, practical stuff. So do internships sure. and I don't know what not. So usually that time is not free in the sense that you actually have time to do something. But uh, back in the day, I still was one of the very ardent students that did everything um, the minute I somebody told me to do something. So basically, I, I just had a lot of free time because I was already done with all those sorts of, th uh, sorts of things. Um, and I guess afterwards, uh, when I came home and uh, checked all the images, I was still not content with everything I had. So even though I used like ND filters and, and graduated into density filters and all these sorts of things, still my images didn't look anything like I wanted them to. And gradually over the next years, I always went on trips and uh, my equipment got better. My knowledge of how to actually operate it got better. And so I guess I improved um, to the point where people got interested in my work. 
And also my friends got interested. So I started uh, to teach them in like little private workshops. And then a community came, uh, college came along and also asked me if I could do workshops for them. And then like a private agency came along. And so I went more into teaching as well, uh, which is kind of natural to me because I did the same thing in university, like um, did uh, for, for minors and stuff. Um, I taught um, like Germany as a second language, for example, and also a little bit of English here and there. And so I kind of grew into that whole teaching thing. And uh, nowadays it's a little bit of everything. So I do that um, workshops all over the place now, I guess, like most landscape photographers. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, so is the photography thing kind of your, your full time income or is you it, it spread it could out? Be. Yeah, like it could be, but the thing is, like, also as you've said, got a band which uh, has a little bit of income. Um, sure. Then I do a lot of language, um, language teaching. Like I okay. kind of work at a prison actually and uh, <laughs> teach oh, cool. uh, convicted felons German. So all the the refugees that actually ended up in prison, and also like other people that don't speak German and kind of end up in prison but want to learn. And so I'm there uh, helping them out. And okay. I guess photography could be like my first or main gig, but if you kind of rely on art in a sense to be your sole income, then it kind of corrupts the whole idea of actually having fun with it. And you're not as <laughs> autonomous anymore because there's more people actually telling you what to do. Like if you have right. somebody who says, okay, you go to that place and take these sorts of pictures, you're not completely free in your creativity anymore. So I right. only, only do that partially, but my bread and butter is still language teaching simply because I don't want it to be like my main gig, not, at least not yet until I get to the point where I'm so good or people are so much interested in what I do that they actually want me to do the things I really want to do myself right. and get paid for that. Because sometimes it's like, oh, I do, for example, real estate photography, I shoot other bands and that's something I really enjoy. But if it sure. comes to the point where photography is my sole income, I would have to do things maybe I wouldn't enjoy so much. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't I don't want to run into that whole issue. So that's why I do a lot of language teaching as well. And also got the band. Well, the band is mainly just for fun, actually. Like, <laughs> Right. No, I get it. That's cool. So, gosh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about um, was your perspective as a European around kind of just the state of landscape photography and, and how it intersects with um, Instagram and... Um, how you what have you seen in terms like of the rise of popularity in certain locations there in Europe? Well, I guess um, the main thing is from what I hear from your podcast, for example, or um, other Americans that I've been talking to over the last couple of years is that it seems like there's a certain delay in how it develops because um, in Germany, whenever I go somewhere or in Europe in general, I kind of have I don't know, like I get lucky maybe because there's not so much people around when I'm shooting apparently. And whenever I hear a story of somebody going to, I don't know, like Mesa Arc or into the, uh, the, uh, the waterfall region, uh, Oregon Pacific Northwest, or I don't know, like the coastline in Oregon or so there's always like, oh, there's 20 tripods here and 20 tripods there. And I can kind of have to squeeze myself in between sort of thing. And in Germany, there seems to be a lay, um, uh, delay in that sense that maybe it's not as bad yet over here, but I sense a certain tendency that more and more the outdoor hype uh, also kind of comes into play here. So when I was the first time I was in Iceland, for example, I went in September 
And there were like a tripod and a guy here and there. And then there maybe there was a workshop or I think we saw two workshops in two weeks. And the next time I was there, like uh, two years later, probably um, the same amount of people I saw in September were already there in January. So right. it kind of kind of got a little bit more over the years, but I guess it's it's still not as bad as it is in the US if you want to talk into good uh, like in, in in a sense that it is actually good and bad because it's probably because I'm part of the problem I kind of really complain right so <laughs> well um it's interesting though because I mean I've done a lot of shooting in the north Pacific Northwest because I used to live there and um you know actually I never really ran into that many people um when I was out shooting but there are definitely certain iconic shots that get a ton of foot traffic so i feel <laughs> like if you're willing to kind of you know not be restrictive in terms of wanting like postcards or you know those super iconic spots it's not a bad problem here in the united states mm. um but you know it's funny i was reading um a friend of mine sarah marino posted a thing on twitter the other day and it was an article about um in uh what is it uh i think it's in norway uh the troll's tongue oh yeah, or, yeah. i was there as well like in 2010 <laughs> actually uh, actually i think i've seen that article yeah like there's just like thousands of people like waiting in line to mm -hmm. take the exact same photo like to me that's ridiculous like why would you do that <laughs> i have no idea like sometimes if uh the like the surrounding, I don't know, like feeling gets deteriorated by too many people. I don't even get out my camera. That has happened right. to me in Iceland a couple of times. I was there, um, okay, there's like 20 people here. Uh, probably we just come back uh, after dark or something, try something in the blue hour because right now I don't really feel it. Um, that might also be one of the reasons why I'm actually not, uh, when I don't have the problem that I actually run into too many people, simply because whenever I'm there, uh, it's usually a very odd time because I love the blue hour, like even after sunrise yeah. or sunset or before sunrise rather, I like to yeah. shoot. So, and most postcard or stamp collectors, they want the grand sunrise or the grand sunset and afterwards they're just gone. So right. that's another good tip for everyone who doesn't want to be uh, trampled to death by their photographers or their tripods, just shoot in odd times. Like if you're in Iceland, for example, just uh, three in the morning might work uh, in summertime, for <laughs> example, like you get the midnight sun, so it's not dark, but you get good right. light and almost nobody there. So right. that might work as well. Um, yeah, it's funny, like um, some of the photos that are in this article, like it's the middle of the day, like blue, like bluebird, no clouds and people are lined up to take a photo on this rock. Like it's mm -hmm. it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> well, I guess it is a different motivation, I guess. It's because you just mentioned Instagram. And I guess for the most people that actually know me, it's not a secret that I'm not too fond of Instagram. I use it for business reasons, as do other photographers. But if I look at the the system itself, it kind of, yeah, well, it's it's pure depravity in the sense of that mine maybe I would even go as far as to say like for landscape photography like classic landscape photography it might be the bane of existence altogether because it kind of switches the the way that we actually perceive landscape photography as a like 
for consumption, so to say. It's like a quick, oh, I got to take a look at hashtag this and that. Oh, that is awesome. I, I just scroll over a couple of pictures. And usually I don't, I, like, I want to engage with the imagery, also the imagery that other people just put up there or rather put right. up on their own platforms. And Instagram kind of degrades everything onto this small couple of pixels on your mobile phone whilst actual landscape photography as it used to be was you go to a gallery and you take a picture uh you take a look at a picture on the wall and you're like ah these lines are impeccable like i know why he went this and that way and i love how the light touches this and that so you actually spend some time looking at the picture and also probably the photographer actually put a lot of work into taking the picture and with instagram everything is like oh i gotta take a quick shot of this and that so if you're a troll tongue for example or Troll, Trolltunga? I don't know quite what the yeah, Norwegian is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then it's something else. You just want to show, or maybe people just want to show, like, ah, I've been there. And because right. it just looks good, because they know it from Instagram. So it's kind well, of changing the, really... the whole motivation thing. And I don't really like not, that. And it's not landscape photography in the classical sense, for sure. Yeah. It's more like um, it's just documenting that you were at a spot. But um, I. And interestingly, I think a lot of the people that are standing in line for that, they're not, they're, I don't know, they're equating it to landscape photography. And there's, to me, there's a big difference between putting your tripod exactly where someone else has put their tripod before and, and seeking out interesting compositions. Like those are two very different forms of expression. Well, one is not even a form of expression. It's, 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 uh, I don't even know what you want to call it. Copycat or yeah, like th I know, thoughtlessness? I, know I don't know. Yeah, the, although like I've done a lot of stamp collecting myself. Actually, I was in Fulton Islands just a week ago. Uh, well, it's, a great, hmm? it's a great way. It's a great way to learn. Yeah, I mean, but, but not only that. you see the elements. But because you got to keep in mind that some of those spots that everybody takes work for a reason. So there's, um, right. for example, like there's a rock on the horizon and it has a great shape. And then you get, um, I don't know, like waterfall in the foreground and it kind of cuts the, the third, uh, the line of thirds here and there. And it kind of just aligns. Some of the iconic shots just work because um, simply the way the topography is aligned just makes it for a good picture. Like Festron on, on Iceland, for example, like everybody takes a picture there, but there's so much like in the foreground with which you can actually work and try to do something differently. and. Also, the light is always different. So, I mean, stem collecting in the sense that you shoot a location that has already been shot can be valuable as well. I agree. Like, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic way to learn composition because you can start yeah, to example. see how the, yeah, how the elements all come together. But I think if that's all you're interested in, yeah, you're you're limiting yourself and as an artist i feel yeah, like. i think nick page actually taught like or dan ballard one of the last podcasts they they talked about like how this is a certain stage in the progression of a landscape photographer like you start out collecting stamps and i even still do that because there's the benefit of if people actually relate to the landscape because they've been there and they have a personal relation to it they are more akin to actually buy the work that you've done so that's one sure. of the reasons, like the most request images I have are the Iceland images because everybody's been to Iceland and they don't want that <laughs> highland um, somewhere in the, in the highlands that that mountain or something they haven't been to. They want the Glacier Lagoon. They want uh, like Skogafoss. They want the, the brick prolific locations. And that's the thing, like if you want to try and make a living, 
that's one of the parts that you have to take into consideration. And that's also one of the reasons why I don't want to do this full time, because it gives me the yeah. freedom to go, for example, to Japan. Again, like I've been to a third time to Japan this year now that I felt like I actually could do something that is worthwhile. And I went to places that probably no Westerner has ever photographed. So like the, the island of Yakushima, which is I don't know if you're like into anime or so, but you might have known uh, you might know the movie Princess Mononoke, um, which is like the, the it's a set on that island or rather the, the um, director actually used it as a inspiration for for the setting so it's like a very pristine and very primordial um forest um nice. with like trees up to seven thousand years old and so i yeah, went up there with a friend and we we're like okay we have no idea how to shoot this because we've never seen any images from here and i came back with a couple of images that i liked but i know i gotta be back because well it's kind of hard to to if if you're in a completely new environment, and I just took that as a challenge. And you can't do yeah. that if if you're kind of only do what what sells, you know. Oh, totally. And and it's funny because you're talking about Instagram, and it's 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 a platform designed for consumption, mm. and and it's kind of it's it's like a catch twenty two for landscape photographers because, um, especially if you're depending on it for your livelihood, because that consumption is the very thing that you absolutely want you want people to consume your images and the of course the the most the the two most obvious ways of consumption for a landscape photographer are to sell prints and then the other is to sell workshops or or skype lessons or or whatever and it's for example yeah and so um it's 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 interesting that um it's like a love-hate relationship that I think we all probably have a little bit with with social media and and what it's done to landscape photography. Because on one hand, we have these amazing vehicles to get our work out in front of people, but on the other hand, it's um, it's almost cheapened um, the production of those images. Yeah, it, it completely has. Like for me, it's been the same way. Like when I started off, like in two thousand eight, and I looked at like this new upload of, of Alexandre, for example, like he put up a new image and it's like the first time I've ever seen images from Patagonia and fall back in the day and was like absolutely stunned and awed by it. Right. And I, 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 like this was actually a highlight of the day for me. Like I took uh, a couple of minutes and went through each shot. And for me that, that just made my day to, to look at those pictures and be inspired to like how he actually, because he has a very idiosyncratic style, like there's nobody else that takes pictures the same way he does. And so it's always like from an artistic perspective, simply very, very important to look at those pictures. And for me, that was something completely entirely different from, from opening up Instagram and then scrolling through my feed like, oh, there's a cool picture by this and that guy. And, this, and it kind of, like I said, deteriorates art into nothing basically into a right, picture right it's not a photograph yeah. anymore it's just a picture so right <laughs> and I, i'm part of the like problem as well and i'm aware of that i just don't know how to fix it like there's um even in the german community with people like kilian schoenberger for example like we've talked about this sort of issue and also from the conservative um nature conservatory um state of things as well like we're part of the problem and this is the thing, like the first one that actually cashes in on a new platform like Instagram, they get big. Like I, I know people that have very big accounts and they make the living of Instagram. And if I weren't as, let's say, 
mm, maybe a little bit of regressive in that sense. I should have done just simply the, th uh, the same thing and I could probably live off my photography or not. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on, on if, if people actually enjoy it. But they kind of propel this thing forward. And once you're there, there's no way going back again. Like now you can't really, or I wouldn't even know how to, to live without Instagram. Um, in the sense that, that you have to, to get to people. And Instagram kind of merges photography with all like, well, everyday folk that are not photographers, but you can reach them via Instagram. So right. it's kind of hard to it imagine how, how the world would now, or the state of landscape photography would be out without that platform anymore. Well, and Instagram is a terrible platform for sharing images in general. I mean, it's 1.2 megapixels. It's really hard to see flaws in images. I mean, you can upload a photo that's grossly over sharpened and whatever, and like it's pretty good on Instagram. Mm. Uh, so in terms of like actually fully evaluating an image, it's pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless you're a photographer, like you don't see that stuff in, in on Instagram usually it's like oh that looks awesome like I I belong I used to I don't anymore because it was like annoying to me but I was in like a I don't even know what you would call it it was like a chat group on Instagram for Colorado photographers but like most of them weren't were very well known and so like and then this guy had he had his own like his own hub I guess you would call it for Colorado photos mm. And he would post all these photos, you know, that he would aggregate through his hashtag. And, like, so many of them were just terrible. Like, there was, like, <laughs> JPEG banding and just just fucking awful stuff. Yeah. And, but th but those like, hubs also have, like, other problems, like the monetarization factor, for example. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I Actually, like, like, to me, it came as a new thing that people actually leech off photographers uh, and post their work. And then at, when they have an account that has a certain uh, reach, they just want to have money for it. It was like, what the hell? Like, how? What, what's on what basis do you want money from me? Like, you haven't done anything yourself other than collecting uh, followers with other people's work. Yeah, so, and there's people that live off their Instagram account in that regard, leeching off actual artists. Yeah, I actually <clears throat> saw an article about that last week. Um, that was like, it got me really pissed off because, yeah, like you said, there's people like they repost other people's photos. They don't even ask for permission most of the time. Yeah. And like they're using their reach and your photos to sell people t-shirts or mugs or yeah like whatever and and like they have no shame in it and instagram the platform itself is totally complicit they don't care yeah They're like that's fine <laughs> as long as they get more interaction and be more people on the platform everything's fine for them so they don't exactly. give a crap and technically all those people are are violating the instagram terms of service but instagram doesn't do anything about it yeah like like there's a lot of flaws with that whole system of instagram but since there's a lot of people actually benefiting of it i guess nobody really gives too much um well of a fuck <laughs> sorry no for the profanity. they don't <laughs> they really don't yeah so um 
Well, shifting gears a little, um, one of the topics that you had kind of mentioned that kind of piqued my interest was um, landscape photography as a cultural practice mm. um, and kind of how it can be used for for documenting um, or I guess, you know, documentary purposes, but also for marketing purposes. And I was curious kind of where you were going with that idea. Yeah, the thing is, um, this is pretty much connected to like personal work I've done in the past at the university because I was looking at, well, basically the different traditions of photography, um, no, of landscape and nature in the US context, for example, like starting off with the frontier experience. And even before that with um, the conquering of uh, the new continent as a whole and the manifest destiny and all those sorts of things. And it kind of from there on from the historic side went into the more contemporary uh, over the Hudson River School, for example, and literature wise, uh, the transcendentalist movement, all the, these sorts of things. And it kind of went into um, judging like how photography and also movies kind of leech off nature and try to to um, well, use it as a set piece or as a space for cultural practices, so to say. So you, for example, got the masculine uh, cliche that somebody goes into nature to be more manly, for example, because <laughs> it's a space for um, emancipation of the masculine thought. And all these these thoughts, the things. And I always wondered, like, what's the intrinsic motivation of somebody to actually go out to these places and do they ever think the same thing like a lot of these authors I read back in the day? Um, were kind of, well, <clears throat> issuing forward, for example, like um, Michael Bunce, for example, he talked about um, the middle landscape and how the transition between cityscapes or rather like urbanized areas and nature has come to be one of the most interesting uh, middle grounds for, for cult cultural practices. So to say that nowadays we don't go out into nature anymore because we don't have to but rather than actually adopting to nature, we kind of adopt nature to us. So mm. nature itself becomes like a construct and like also a culture construct because everything we see, for example, a photograph is not as nature is perceived naturally, but it, via technology. So we get a sure. different impression. And with all these, and that was kind of the, the end goal, looking at different technologies we have nowadays, like time-lapse, slow motion, um, also like telescope stuff and so on, how these different ideas and technical um, sort of uh, yeah, apparatuses kind of change the perception of how we see nature via the cultural practice of, for example, photography. Like we've seen things that nobody else was ever able to see because the technology just wasn't, wasn't there and how that changes our perception of nature to begin with. So. We see like these awesome time-lapse shots, for example, and see like, oh, this is how the Milky Way actually um, moves, or rather we move within okay. it. And that kind of changes our perception of how the night sky looks to us, for example. And landscape photography for these reasons is a very important tool because it can connect us back to nature in a sense that I look at a picture and think, oh, this is a beautiful place and nature is so awesome, maybe spark interest in actually getting to know about that place. And then maybe also um, try to help with the place. For example, um, I kind of always bring up Iceland, but I don't know why. There's a lot of, of um, buzz been around, I think like a couple of months ago, somebody posted, I think it was Stefan Foster, posted about something that 
uh, Chinese investors wanted to buy, um, build like power plants in the highlands. Mm. And a lot of people, even those uh, that haven't been there, were kind of speaking up like, oh, this is not a very good idea. And that's, those weren't even Icelandic people, but because a lot of people have connections to those places because they've seen the pictures, they were um, very aggravated over somebody actually tearing that place apart. And so it can, like landscape photography, can be an inspiring method of actually trying to, to get people to notice landscape and nature as such, um, which is a topic that you've already uh, brought up a couple of times here. And on the other yeah. hand, it can be used for marketing, which is the bad side. But yeah, I didn't want to cut you off. <laughs> no, um, it's funny because, um, you know, with the bear's ears and the grand uh, staircase Escalante thing, that's going on here about, you know, they're reducing the size. And if you look at the real underlying motivations that, um, aside from what's trying, what people are trying to sell to us, it's really like, it's really to appease the commercial interests of a couple of small corporations that want to make a shitload of money off of the land. Um, which of course will probably create jobs for people that live in that area. But for the most part, the only people that really benefit are a small handful of very wealthy individuals at the top of um, very already wealthy corporations. And it's interesting that um, somehow uh, the I've seen a lot of landscape photographers um, kind of lash out against that particular mm. issue in the last couple of weeks, um, which, you know, rightfully so, they're... The, the government is trying to reduce the size of an area and, 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 and that we all enjoy to photograph. And, and for, if you really dig into it, the reasons are, are pretty, they're pretty uh, corrupt, I would say. But the, what's interesting is that doesn't seem to shake some people like that are on that end of the political spectrum. They don't, they would, they value it's it's so strange but they actually they value the financial gains the theoretical financial gains of a few individuals over this is my perception anyway, over um the collective gain of the entire society of those le those locations being somewhere that we can all go and enjoy for what they already are yeah. and so um and i don't know if that's a thing in Europe or not but what what strikes me as frustrating is that um, that the the images and, and the all of those like conservation kind of perspectives don't seem to matter to a lot of people and I don't know if it's because they've never been to those places or they, they don't have the same connection to the wilderness that some of us do or 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 if it's just a difference in values but um, I wish that just showing people images of these places was enough to convince them that they should be kept the way they are. I don't know, like maybe images themselves are not enough because as you've said, you have to experience it. But if you see a couple of these pictures actually go to the place, it might change your perspective on these things. I guess for those in power, and I would just say this as I, as I think it is, it might be a little bit different because they themselves have a different perspective on the monetary um, benefits that this brings. I mean, I don't quite know 
if there is a lot of people actually benefiting from it in the sense that it's not only a wealthy few, but also the people that actually get put into work, for example. So there might be a little bit more benefit that we see because we're kind of blind on one eye and they're blind on the other eye, so to say. Sure. Um, I guess even if they went there, if you haven't instilled these sort of images into your heart for I don't know how long, it kind of might just leave you cold and unaffected. I know a lot of people like because I live in a very, very uh, rural, uh, not a rural area, but like an urbanic area, like there's no major, um, well, like nature parks around where I live for the next, I don't know, like 400 kilometers. And this is actually like the petrochemical, um, like the city where I live is a petrochemical um, like hub in a sense, or like a nexus fall of Europe. So we get one of the biggest plants here and like the coal industry was really, really big as well. Mm. And I guess if you live in such a place for a long time, you kind of lose perspective for the natural world. And a lot of um, politicians these days, because they're just so busy, probably don't have the time to actually go out into nature and experience it and thus don't learn how to value it. And a couple of pictures on some board or on social media won't probably change their minds. More so the actions of people and I guess ultimately the the votes, for example, like if you know who's responsible, just don't give them your votes the next time around. I guess that's <laughs> no, like that's... the only only thing people understand these days. Well, it's the only power we have in the United States. Democracy is to vote people out. I mean, that's really yeah. the only power we have. It feels like. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of, of like yeah, maybe not that but there's a lot of, of <laughs> things to be long um for example like in germany you have the anti-nuclear um movement in the 80s and 90s and even still today and there's a lot of people that are just going out and well marching and that happens quite a lot but probably like this is not one of those issues where you can gather enough people to actually care about it to organize because if you organize your voice will probably be heard sure um, sure with this, like I, I studied American culture studies, but I still can't wrap my head around the current political state uh, of the United States. So probably even that won't help anymore. But <laughs> I mean, that that's the thing. Like if you get enough people together, they can't ignore you anymore. And I guess landscape photography in this regard, for example, would be a tool to actually do that, get people interested. So as a cultural practice coming kind of closing the loop, so to say, landscape photography can be something that is very powerful for actually, well, for the conservatism, uh, conservationism issue, I would say, like, um, think about people like Elliot Porter, for example, uh, he did it back in the day, or even writing John Muir, for example, with literature, did the same thing, like he, uh, why does he, um, how has it got, I think the essay was called "We Need uh, Something About We Need to Save the Redwoods." I can't think of the title right now, but he did the same thing. Like, and back in the day, people actually paid attention. And now, with our media overkill, it's kind of hard. Um, because yeah, there's so much noise. Yeah, it's just so much noise. You need to cancel out. But if you, with this sort of thing, can agglomerate enough people. Well, and the other thing that's, I mean, we're going way off topic, but the other thing that's, <laughs> that's crazy fine. nowadays um, is like, there's so much oversimplification on the parts of, of, of um, most people like, oh, well, that's just what the liberals are. Oh, that's just what the conservatives think. So they just completely discount 
what they're saying for just being from that perspective and mm. and honestly like as a country i feel like we need to get back to actually having meaningful conversations as a collective and not just like discounting other people's viewpoints because they're not the because they're liberals or conservatives like there's yeah. a lot of overlap and agreement that can be made if people just stop putting people into these buckets and so it's people are mentally lazy and no i, mean, I, I don't think they're uh, they're lazy if you, if you take a look at how the acceleration of technology has kind of put up uh with the sort of information or the amount of information that we need to process each and every day kind of pattern finding and putting things into category just helps us mentally to cope with the amount of information that we actually have to work through every oh, each and every sure. day so sure. thinking in black and white kind of just minimizes the effort. And that doesn't mean that we're lazy. It just means we have more information to go through. And for partisan issues, it's the same same thing. Like, it's easier to actually say, okay, um, he's liberal, he's a Democrat, he's a Republican, whatever. And kind of still on that basis say, hmm, whatever he says is not really relevant for me because he's part of the other party rather than have so many people actually talking or um, weighing in on an issue and actually taking all those things into consideration. I mean, that's what meaningful politics should be like. But if you take sure. into consideration other things, like even in photography, like you, you have the, the dichotomy between like photoluminous and the realist or naturalist, so to say, it's the same thing. Like if somebody from the from the photoluminist um, cast says something, and then the other side says this and blah, blah, blah. And so there's no meaning, meaningful conversation in that issue either. Or if you look right. into, into um, sports, or if you look into music, it's the same way. Like people have their, their little draws where they just assemble everything in the order they want it to be. Because it's kind of hard to keep an open mind for everything. And well, it's I mean, it's, as a species, I mean, we've it's i mean it's the the term is called heuristics i mean it's mm. mental it's mental shortcuts that help us um uh make sense of the world around yeah. us and it, it's 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 just, it's actually a survival mechanism that served us very well as a species for a very long time you know like oh red means danger or or mm. you know like this this means that so that means i need to run or i need to fight like it's it's actually what's made us very strong as a species but at the same time um i feel like if we succumb to it all of the time it really prevents us from having really great conversations and coming to a a more thoughtful consensus about how to handle a situation versus just voting the way that we're told on the radio or whatever Indeed. you know like but that's um, like if, if you have a system that kind of purports, uh, that kind of supports these th sort of things, like if, if it kind of forces you to think in black and white, because otherwise you can't cope with your reality anymore, simply because you right. have so much things on your mind that you can't really think about anything in specific anymore in for a longer period of time. I guess it's it's a whole systemic problem, not so much that our kind of our psyche isn't up to the task but rather like our surroundings are deteriorating so fast um, that we kind of have to see for ourselves like and most likely be very egotistical about it. I mean, that's the same thing in landscape photography. I, I take this picture and I leave a trace and somebody else does, but I'm supposed to because it's my picture, but somebody else can't. <laughs> I mean, you can like you see this all over the place and all sorts of things like. 
and landscape well, photography, it's... for example, is, is a very good example for this. Like, oh, for sure. It's like uh, just today I was on Instagram. What's so ironic? Um, and I was looking at this this photo I saw. This guy had taken a picture of um, Mount Assiniboine in um, Canada mm-hmm. and like that whole area. And but he he blended in uh, Milky Way behind it, which of course isn't like pretty sure that any photo you take of that mountain of that perspective you're looking north so it's not even possible <laughs> and then and then like in the foreground he blended in like uh, a long exposure of a road like cars traveling on a road and so it was like a blend of three different completely different photographs and it actually was well done like he did a good job of the blend so that's but it was like ah this this isn't even possible like and and I do a blending all the time. So it was like, well, he, I do it. So he should be able to do it too. But, I, and, and he was, he, he said it was a blend. So I wasn't, but it was still like my first, my first reaction was like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. That's, I you think, know? um, I wrote a piece on, on like the mimetic nature or the fallacy of the mimetic nature of photography that kind of tapped into those territories because I personally don't do much to my work. Like I don't blend things usually, or rather I don't compose, I should say. And I think it's fine if other people do it because I know that this whole thought sort of thing is kind of iffy and the topic, like if you if you attack, like I've, I've followed all these different, um, well, I don't know if we'd call it flame wars, but if somebody sure. posts something like um, one of my favorite photographers from South Africa, Hogat Malan, I hope I'm not butchering his name too badly. He posted something uh, akin to like, oh yeah, here's another tutorial by this and that guy and uh, don't do this. And Alex Nail, another photographer whom I very much respect, um, did the same thing. And then everyone was kind of in, in indulging in, in war, so to say, like in verbal, right. verbal combat. And I for myself think everybody should do what he, what they want, but I got that reflex that you have as well. Like I look at that and I always think like, ah, crap. He gets more attention for something that wasn't even there and didn't even have to put any work into it other than right. like, sit around in Photoshop. And right. now that, that kind of, well, came out wrong maybe because learning Photoshop is also a lot of work and actually making a no, good blend no, is also work. But you got it because... I think I think ultimately what that's about you just hit the nail on the head. I unless even if we're not willing to admit it or not, our critique of other people's work especially in that way has nothing to do with that person's work. Ultimately it has to do with our own yep. uh, ego and our own insecurities and our own desires to be successful. Yes. And and like you said like, oh, well, he did that and he's got all this attention on social media. That's just not fair. And um I don't care what you say like I think ultimately that's what it's about for people is that they're they're ultimately how dare that person get recognition for something that isn't even real. <laughs> yeah, that, that exactly that's the thing. And also, I think that's one of the issues in Instagram is that you get a lot of people that don't know the first thing about photography and they see all these amazing images, which are just, well, fake. Um, and they grow accustomed to those standards. And now if you're yes. a, a regular photographer who doesn't do much to his work, like you don't blend in the sky, you don't like, I don't know what else technique I should come up with now, but you don't sure. do that, those thoughts uh, of things, you kind of fall 
over the edge, so to say. Like nobody recognizes the work you put into it anymore because it's not uberly colorful and doesn't represent any sort of absolutely out of this world scenery anymore. And that's one of the issues that a lot of people um, have with these sort of blends because it kind of makes people numb to actual real landscape photography. Right, and now, yeah, exactly. Many people would now say, uh, then your work is just not good enough. And I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, <laughs> I, I can see that. But there's just some things you can't match. I mean, you can go to places like, for example, a friend of mine, Jonas, he goes to Venezuela to shoot the Catatumbo uh, thunderstorms. Like this oh, is uh, uh-huh. the place where you get uh, probably like 300 days a year, you get thunderstorms over um, a lake. It's one of the That's most awesome. uh, extraordinary places on earth, probably. And he does a lot of that work, for example. But not everyone can go to these places nor can anyone right. be in time for the right light all the time because it's about consistently creating compelling content, as Aaron Batnick already said. So you can't always do that, but you can always shop stuff together in Photoshop. So <laughs> well, that's why I started doing it. I mean, I, you know, working full time and, and, and raising, having a family and like, like I didn't have time to like go to a location 40 times to hope to get one good photo of that location. So I started, that's why I started doing it yeah. myself. And, and I guess a lot of people did that for the same reason. Like you're under the pressure. Sure. Yeah, pressure, simply pressure, because otherwise you don't get seen anymore. And that yeah, causes frustration. Exactly. And so you either buy into the notion that, oh, I have to do this, otherwise nobody notices me anymore or you go the fuck it route and just say okay well if nobody recognizes me anymore this gives me the opportunity to do it, to do it for myself but right. that comes That's with where a catch I went eventually <laughs> yeah but extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation are two different things like i look at a picture like i do a lot of black and white work and mm-hmm. i love my black and white shots but they don't get near nowhere near as much recognition uh, recognition as my colorful shots right sure sure so I kind of tend to do a little bit of both stuff that yeah. people like and stuff that I like. And for me, that middle ground has always worked out. So, yeah, that's a good way to approach it. I think for sure. Um, otherwise I feel like you're, you're, unless you're an exceptional person, <laughs> you're, you're going to feel a little upset eventually one way or the other. I feel like it's, it's good to have that kind of middle perspective, I think. Yeah, and I notice. Um, by the way, um, since I'm in the in the music industry, at least for for some parts, um, there it's exactly the same thing. Like if you water down metal oh, into, right. for example, metal core, like um, probably I don't know how many of your listeners are actually into metal, but if you take bands like Five Finger Death Punch, for example, which are really popular, um, it's kind of watered down and popish metal if you compare it to bands like uh, I don't know, like Melvin Creation or like black metal stuff from Norway or whatever. And there's like this, this sentiment is there as well. Like there's like, ah, I play guitars for, I don't know, 20 years and I'm way better than that guy. And he just chunks a couple of chords and they just <laughs> got more money for marketing. And all these sorts of sentiments are all over the place, like in any creative art form. So it's not oh, only I'm about sure. landscape photography these days. Right, it's, it's all, it's our human flaws. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of resurface whenever we do something that we're very fond of and other people, we just need the recognition or the, the extrinsic motivation to actually continue. It's a bad place for, for people to start. But even like I, I also have the same issues. Like I see pictures on Instagram, as you've said, like, 
uh, he got so much attention and that is so bad and I probably he just bought a couple of features and uh, and all these sorts of things but then again when I look at my wall and I see these huge black and white prints I'm like that's worth it <laughs> right know? yeah 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 well so um I was curious I'm gonna skip one of my questions throw it out throw you off a little bit uh, but uh, I'm curious <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> who, who would you like to hear on the podcast Oh, well, there's, uh, I guess I could start recommending a couple of American photographers, but then again, you're pretty much well set up with those. So yeah, I think I, I, yeah, totally. I should so maybe, maybe recommend some European people. people. Heard of, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I already mentioned, uh, Alex nail. I think I already yeah. talked to, uh, told you that I would really like to hear his thoughts because he's also one of the more natural people. Uh, does yeah. very little processing at all and puts all his effort into actually hiking miles and miles to get to a certain spot. Yeah, I've been started, following his hmm? work for I've been following his work for probably five or six years. I, yeah. I really like I really like his stuff. And I also really like his no bullshit attitude. <laughs> As he, he's an absolute no nonsense person. Um, and who else? Well, uh, one of his best friends, which I also already brought up, is Hogart Malan from South Africa. Also one of the more naturalist guys. Then probably I should um, mention Cody Duncan. Do you know him? No. Uh, he's, a, he's a very interesting backstory because he now lives in Lofoten Islands. And I actually just met up with him a couple of days ago. And he originates, okay. uh, he's originally from California and lived a couple of years and like in New Zealand and also in Germany. And now he actually uh, permanently moved to the Lofoten Islands. So he might be somebody uh, you might want to talk to because I probably uh, you'd be very interested in what he has to say. And also, he's an absolute specialist on, on Lofoten Islands. So if there's nice. anything Lofoten you want to talk about, he's the guy to talk to. Cool. Um, and maybe uh, just a last recommendation. Um, I hope I spell his name correctly. Otherwise, he'll, he'll just hopefully not beat me up. But uh, <laughs> it's Jose Ramos. He's okay. a Portuguese uh, photographer. And he's on the other side of the spectrum. So he does a lot of very heavy editing. Um, okay. Not necessarily the composing, but he has his very own style of very colorful and very extreme images in that sense that um, some of these don't really look realistic and, or actually none of them really look realistic anymore. But I don't really know what, are, what other photographer I should uh, no, that's sort of good. compare I'm him to. So Jose is also um, somebody uh, I'll probably have on my podcast as well sometime in the future when I actually do some English podcasts like as a special, I don't know, season finale something. So um, <laughs> he's probably also, he's very proficient in English. So there shouldn't be uh, any sorts of issues in that regard either. Um, cool. Yeah, so so I guess those, uh, I mean, I could go on for, I don't know, like another 20 minutes if you want me to recommend other great photographers. <laughs> no, this is perfect. Um, you can, I mean, you could always send them to me over email or to, or whatever, but this is perfect for the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Okay, yeah.